Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm your host. See, I already sound too serious. I Okay, so here's the thing. I have been told by several listeners and several friends and my wife uh, that these intros are too serious, that the show is a lot of fun and these intros are too serious. So now I'm trying to do this without a script and be this happy-go-lucky host. It doesn't come naturally to me, but I'm trying to do it. So I'm going to try again. So I'm Andrew Friedman. I'm your host. And we have a great guest this week. The guest is Amanda Freitag, who you probably know as one of the judges on Chopped. Uh, But Amanda, as many people probably don't know, and this is what we spent the whole hour talking about, Amanda had a a huge career in New York City, uh, first as a line cook and then a sous chef, and then as a chef in her own right at several pretty well-known restaurants in the city. And uh, I've known her for a long time. She's what? She's got a great laugh, which you're going to hear all the way through um, this interview. The interview was just a blast. I think you're going to love hearing Amanda uh, and hearing about a part of her life that probably most of you don't know. uh, And that's all I'm going to say about it. So that's our intro. And here's Amanda Freitag uh, recorded about a week ago at her office in New York City. I hope you enjoy it. So, Amanda, it's great to see you. Always good to see you. Um, for the second, we haven't seen each other in forever. I know. And then we saw each other at Missy Robbins's book launch. Book launch, and you very kindly said, uh, "Can I come on the podcast?" Yes, of course. And you made my day. Oh um, well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, uh, and I was trying to remember when we first did we meet when you were at Verbena. I think so. We did, but yep. we didn't really hang. We didn't really know each other back then. No, probably not. I was working all the time. Yeah, I was spending most of my time in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's funny. Well, we'll get to all that in a minute. Okay. And I should say we are at you and I have something in common. Yes, which is that we are both members of WeWork, which, which I is love. Getting a free plug right now. <laughs> uh, we're not going to divulge uh, Amanda's location. Yes. We're not going to divulge Amanda's location. We would like hordes of people waiting outside. Yes. To meet yes, me. <laughs> I, I I have a less high profile, so I'm at the Irving place we work, and uh, and Amanda's at a different we work in New York City. I actually but, couldn't afford that one, but that, that's no, another story. But you have an office. <laughs> yes. I, I have a hot desk. I just oh, have, I a have desk. an office. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I hope that <laughs> hope that makes you feel better about your standing <laughs> in the world. Um, but. Um, so well, before we jump in on your biography, can you just tell me, because I'd love to get a sense of your life at the moment. My you, life the at last, the moment. Just tell me the last week. Where have oh, you, where have okay. you been geographically um, and professionally in the last week? Okay, this is a very good question. Um, uh, I was in Kentucky Saturday and Sunday. For? For the Bourbon and Beyond Festival. Okay. Which is, an, it was the first year, and it was music and food, yeah. and it was great. And I flew home on Monday the four-hour flight delay. God knows why. And then uh, t- 
Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I was in the CHOP studio. How many episodes do you tape in a day? One. Just one? That's all we can get in. And how long does that take? Uh, I usually arrive there at 6 a.m. Oh and gosh. we leave anytime in between 6 p.m. and 8 o'clock. Wow, for one episode. Yeah, it's wow. a lot. A lot goes on in a day. That's, and you did three days in a row. Uh, yeah, that's, that's probably the max. So how does a day like that compare to a day when you were, you know, like on the line, uh, working in a kitchen, right? Because yes. that's, that's about as long a day as a long kitchen day. It is at about... At least to, by today's standards. Yeah, it is about as long of a day as a kitchen day. And I think also people think it's glamorous and easy because you're sitting and it's TV. And we actually had a guest judge um, recently who was talking about how much a production day seemed like a kitchen day to him. Is that right? Yeah. This was a chef judge. Yeah, it was okay. a chef judge. I mean, because you really do have to be on the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, so I could compare it to like as if you were going into the dining room and talking to the tables for, you know, 10 hours. Right. <laughs> you really have to be on. Yeah. And um, it's like a crew also. It's a production crew. Yeah. Um, we all work together to make something. So there's that family dynamic. There is that family dynamic. I think it's why I love it so much. Mm-hmm. And I'm with chefs all day. Right. You know, I'm with people who are all about food all day. Right. And it's, it's, I, I don't want to say exhausting, but it is tiring. You know, it's, I go home. It's mentally home, more than physically, right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've eaten all day where really I've just eaten some strange stuff and never really yeah. good meal. Yeah. And then, you know, you kind of have to come back and do it again. And there's some stresses involved. There's sure. a lot of pressure. We still take those decisions very seriously of who wins and who doesn't. And, you know, you need to really know everything about the ingredients and constantly be talking about food. Right. And and does the, is the sort of social dynamic the same? I mean, do you all tend to, you, do you become like, a, like yeah, if, I, if Instagram is to be believed, yeah. it seems like you guys have all become friends, yes. like all the judges, you guys seem to hang out quite, I've run into you. Uh, or seen you around once yeah. in a while with somebody from the show. Yeah, I mean, generally we'll usually land at the same food festival. Sure. Or, you know, if another chef friend of ours is having a restaurant opening or right. an event or, you know, like a book launch, sure. you know, we support yeah. for sure. Yeah. And we support each other with new projects right. always. So we always try to be there for each other. So, sure. yes, we have become a family. Uh-huh. A dysfunctional one. Right. It's <laughs> okay. a family. And um, it's been very interesting to see it grow over the years. I mean, we started at the end of 2008. Oh, my gosh. So I didn't realize it had been that long. Quite a long run. That's great. And yeah. still going strong, it feels still like. Still going strong. Yeah. I mean, I want to knock on something, yeah. but it's we're really lucky. you know. And actually, Ted Allen the other day was saying like how you know we got to that sort of seven-year stretch, and it felt like, wow we've been doing this for seven years in sure. kind of a, a exhausting manner. But at the same time, as soon as we turned the corner, he was like, holy cow, yeah. we've been doing this for seven years yeah. and let's keep going. Like then right. you get that re-motivation of maybe we'll break some records. This is amazing yeah. in this day and age, you know, to ha- to continue to be this strong uh-huh. as, a, as a show on, yeah. a, on a network. Um, okay. So let's, let's go back. Cause you know, I don't know how many people, you know, know your, History, but you know, before this chapter in your life, you had a very um, successful um, career in New York City yeah. as as a, as a New York City chef. I'm um, happy to talk about it now because what I what I've been saying recently is people, younger people, have a very short attention span. Yeah. So a lot of people who just see me on the Food Network 
don't know about anything that I've right. ever done in the restaurant industry because I don't currently have restaurants. Right. So if they forget or they maybe don't even know that yeah. I had 20 something years of experience yeah. as a hands-on working chef. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, very, that's how I still think of myself. And very prominently. I mean, so let's get into this. So yeah. first of all, before that chapter, uh, you didn't start in New York. You, you're a Jersey girl, proudly, I, I assume, yes, like every very Jersey proudly. girl I know. Um, uh, so where, where in New Jersey did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Cedar Grove. Okay. In the suburb, right outside of the city, um, near Montclair and Verona. Those okay. are more familiar cities yeah. in that area. But I was born in Jersey City, so I'm 100%. But I'm, I can only say that I'm lucky that I don't have the accent. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, and you know, I, I always love to ask people who end up cooking for a living, you know, whether or not you re- knew it at the time, right? Right. When you look back now... Um, you know, and think about the first sort of kind of spark, whether you would call it food, cooking, restaurants, uh, uh, television shows, you know, there probably weren't that, well, there were some, yeah. uh, uh, you know, cookbooks, like what, when you look back now, what was sort of the first kind of thing that started pulling you along this path? Yeah, it was definitely a combination of things, but at the base of it is restaurants, Mm-hmm. Um, and my home economics teacher, believe it or not, who obviously I was her star student cause I was actually interested. I yeah. didn't sleep in the class Yeah. and she used to work in a country club on the weekends. So she was very hands-on in the As industry. I think she did. I think she was a server okay. for money. Yeah. Um, and my brother started working at a restaurant in town okay. as a, a busboy or a waiter. Yeah. And I really wanted to work there. Yeah. So I kind of lied on my working papers. I was 15. Uh-huh. I was supposed to be 16 to right. work. <laughs> and then I started working in that restaurant. And it was, there's not too many of these around anymore. It was a banquet hall. Yeah. Multiple rooms. Sure. But it also had a freestanding like a la carte restaurant. Part attached to the as same part, facility. As part of the facility. So that, well, the banquet hall had one entrance and, the, yep. and valet parking yes, exactly. and the hall. I know these places. <laughs> you yeah. know these places. Yeah. And uh, so I started in the restaurant as a bus girl, became a right. waitress, started doing banquet waitressing. Yeah. Um, and then there was a whole crew of people that were, you know, these little individual families. You know, it was my brother and I that worked there. There's another family called the McGarrities. Four of them work there. The Lavellis, three of them work there. And talk about family feel in restaurant, yeah. you know. But I started peeking into the kitchen. And at these banquets, we would do these huge um, Viennese dessert tables, sure. which I don't think gets done anymore either. I, I've been to a couple of these, actually. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was a, Oh, I wish I could remember. I can't remember. I'm going to... There's was a, there was a place in New Jersey. It's still there. It starts with an M. Manducagna. Oh, uh, the Manor. New York. The no, Man- it's, it's an Italian name. I can't remember oh, it offhand, but anyway, they did the Viennese exist. hour. It was—it's yes. like for people who don't know, it's a big deal. That is—it's uh, an Italian American tradition yep. at big events, yes. and it is literally—you uh, go into a room, and it, the room—it's <laughs> like—it's like a what you would normally associate as a with a savory meal, right? Right, like buffet lines on both sides of the room, exactly. tables in the middle, every pastry, every cake, pastry dessert you've ever heard you of. You can imagine. And you go through and you have like a dessert meal. Yes, you do. After your yes, first and meal. Yes, there's towers yeah. and tiers and yeah. there's cakes yeah. and, and penny fours yeah. and coffee. And, it's amazing. Yeah. And so uh, the pastry chef's name was Hank and I, he used to let me come into the kitchen and see what he was doing. And that's kind of the first moment I, I can think of that I got hooked physically on that kind of thing. But 
What, what drew you to it? Was it the sort of the, um, like the acumen, like the skill? It was the mystery of it. I thought, like, how, I thought how is he doing this? Yeah. Where is this all coming from? Right. How does he make it? Are there what, hundreds of people? What kind of are, stuff caught your, do you remember? Like what kind of things he was? Beautiful cakes. Cakes. And, yeah. and gorgeous, like individual pastries yeah. and, and just the display of everything. You know, yeah. he really took pride. I believe he was Austrian in, in the beauty of it all, you know, and, there was high volume. This guy was working real hard to get all this stuff done. So um, I was also, it's so funny that you ask about television. Obviously, I, I watched the standards, you know, Jul Julia Child. Yeah. I remember watching Yang Can Cook a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, Graham sure. Kerr. I, 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 even at that time, I thought, God, this guy drinks a lot. <laughs> But there was Graham a, Kerr, for people who don't know, was the Galloping Gourmet. Galloping Gourmet. And if you want to see something that just reeks of its era, <laughs> oh um, he is the most charming. I love him. Funny. Uh, it was a cooking show. Uh, with had, an audience. With an, a live studio audience. He often drank on camera. Yes, he did. Um, he often wore funny costumes, like he put on a uh, suit of armor or he was period quite the outfits. And, and there was often a travel component. Yep. And it's, these are, there's a ton of them on YouTube. But there anyway, it's, th this there, was already ancient history when you were watching it. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. was, probably, it was probably in reruns when yeah, I was, was watching sure. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, But there, were, there was a movie that actually, I know it sounds so crazy when I talk about this. Um, it was called Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe. Yeah, sure. Robert I don't know Morley. if you know the movie yeah, 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 or yeah. not. Yeah. It, I was fascinated by it. Yeah. I just, I, the premise of the movie is, is that each chef, these European chefs, um, there's, it's a murder mystery. Right. They die by, um, way of what their cooking specialty is. So if one chef has a pressed duck, you know, um, made with this, blood sauce from the duck he died that way yeah. the other guy especially was lobster thermidor he died in the lobster tank you right. know it was just the food the the romance of the chef world and european chefs were at the time were the only kind of chefs that i had to look up to yeah it wasn't a thing in America. Yeah. Uh, it was very blue collar, yeah. the work mm -hmm. in America at the time. And I also watched a series called The Great Chefs of Europe. I don't mm -hmm. know if you remember that sure. one too, narrated by a woman or a man. And there'd be European chefs in the kitchen cooking. And I would just watch these creations. Yeah. And it was fascinating to me. So I was influenced by my home ec teacher because I wanted, she told me about the Culinary Institute of America. So was this person kind of like your, I've heard this from a handful of chefs in my time. Charlie Palmer actually had a home ec really? teacher who I believe drove him to the Culinary Institute well, for his interview. But um, she came with us. She came she with my parents. So this and was I. like your kind of guardian angel. Kind of. I yeah. mean, you know, I didn't want. <laughs> my oldest brother is an academic. My other brother was quite smart uh, and was on the fence about college. Um, and I didn't want to go. I uh -huh. felt that college was four years of additional high school. And it wasn't for me, you know, even though I got along fine with, you know, my peers. And how she, were you starting? How were you? I'm just this is always interesting to me. How did how were you academically? I was a great student. You were a good student. I was a good student. I was in all advanced classes. Okay. I loved math, you know, like I was really a good student. And I just I wasn't interested in more of that. Yeah. And maybe I just didn't have the right introduction to what college is because, you know, in my mind, it was just more of high school. Yeah. So she told me about this school, which I would have never have known about if it wasn't for her. Right. And then we went and toured it with my parents. And they used to do a thing called the Taste of the CIA, where you toured it and there were chefs, you know, at tables making food and showing you around the school. And it was... That was like a sales pitch. 
fascinating. But that was for yeah, prospective students? For students. Okay. And all these chefs that I had seen on television, seen in that movie in toques with neckerchiefs and the whole uniform, all over this beautiful campus in upstate New York, like... I was in awe. You so know. these were graduates who came to participate? These were uh, chef instructors. Okay. These were probably students at the time. Yeah. And I, I just thought, this is, this is it. Yeah. This is what I want to do. And so at the time, you had to have a year of experience in a working establishment before you could be accepted. Mm -hmm. So I worked in a country club in New Jersey for a year. How and was that? And then I went. It was... Um, Probably not the best choice, but it, I learned how to... It, it was more short order cooking than anything. Okay. So I learned about speed yeah. of cooking and uh, pressure. Uh -huh. It was a it was like a cafe outside by the pool. So it had its, it had its merits for you Absolutely. in the long run oh, in yeah. terms of training. It, uh, it, it, fit, it gave you a piece of the, of uh, the puzzle that you needed. Yeah, and I think the real test and the real reason for that requirement was if you still like it... Yeah you know, come to school when, you know, we don't want to waste our time on you because yes. if you, you can make it through a year in some kitchen somewhere, yeah. then you still want to do it. Right. Did which you, I think should still be in place, but that's just my opinion. Right. It's, um, uh, I know at another time it was a two year requirement there. Yeah. Um, probably earlier, earlier than, than when you I went. went. Yeah. yeah. Like in the late seventies, you were supposed to have had two years of experience. I agree with that. And when I went to school, which I loved, I was the youngest in my class. I mean, probably the median age average was 30. So was this a time, I, I, this is a good way to segue to it. Would, how did your, you mentioned one of your brothers was an academic. Yeah. How did you, how would your family, uh, how did they receive the thought of you <laughs> wanting to not go to college and go to, you're cracking up, and go to uh, cooking school? Because you kind of came into the business at a time, it was transitional, right? It wasn't like, you know, you talk to almost anybody who started uh, cooking professionally, like in the seventies, you know, right. and they'll tell you like the day they told their parents to want it to be a cook, you know, right. it was like coming out, you know, yeah. like their parents like freaked out. Uh, it was a big conversation yeah. and they thought they were throwing their lives away. Often they thought they were throwing away a college or law school degree. Right. This is when you come what into it, it, like, it was trans. It was a transitional yeah, I mean, time, but was, it was still, like you said, it still we had this turning blue collar. the corner yeah. into 1990 and, my father was incredibly supportive. He was? Yeah. Immediately? Immediately. I think, I think because he had a slight interest in it. I mean, he was a, a systems, you know, analyst, a yeah. data, he was a computer guy. Yeah. My mom did not understand it. Yeah. At all. Because she couldn't, she couldn't see it. You know what I mean? She couldn't really know that why would working in a restaurant be a career choice for you? And my grandmother was... A working woman. She worked until she, her eighties. She worked until she was literally blind. She was losing her eyesight. Wow. She ran libraries in okay. Weehawken and Secaucus in New okay. Jersey, and she was kind of cutting edge for women in her generation. Yeah. She always worked, um, and even from her, I was surprised to get um, a little flack because she said, "You know, why do you want to do that? I'll give you money to go to secretarial school. You know, that's 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 not something that you know women do." And because you know, why? Because it was kind of a, I guess because it was had really this a dirty job. Dirty at the time. job, and the, the people who did it had this reputation yeah, as being it's kind like of you're, hard you're a, and, a dirty cook, yeah. and you are you know it's it's just a hard work, yeah, yeah. you know. And they didn't understand why I would do it. Yeah, and I, you know when I went to school, 
they came with me, they dropped me off. I remember my mother just being really upset. And my dad was like, he gave me the, you know, go for it nod. Uh And I was so excited and I was scared. My, the ratio of men to women when I went was five to one. Okay. Um, honestly, again, like I never really pulled a female chef card. I enjoyed it. You know, I, I don't take that as a thing that I need uh, allowance for. You know, I always looked at it. I had two older brothers. I grew up with, you know, surrounded by men. I loved the feel in the restaurant where if I was sure I was the only girl, but that always felt normal to me. Uh-huh. And in a way it made me work harder. You mm-hmm. know, when people talked about, well, you're the only girl in this class or you're the only girl here. I actually got more out of it because of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was obvious, obviously all the time, but I got used to it and I kind of thrived on it, Yeah, you know? And so I was one of the few in my graduating class, um, at CIA and I loved it. I ended up really loving it. I think my mom around graduation time started to feel the pride a little more, but they couldn't relate. Honestly. I mean, restaurant, there was no food network. There were no chefs that were... American really that were on television that could show that they were a restaurant chef and that was a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, you know, there was not a lot of press. I mean, there was a few food magazines, but really not that many that, you know, it, it wasn't the flood of information that we have now about the yeah. food business. So right. it was hard for them to put their finger on. And then they think when I started working in restaurants, when I was out in the workforce, and they would come in and eat and they would see other people enjoying the food that I made and see the progress of my career. Obviously she started to understand it then. Yeah. What did you have in your mind um, as you decide to go to the CIA when you go through there? D- did you have an image in your head of sort of, <laughs> I don't want to say like a five-year plan, but did you have a picture of like who you uh, wanted to be? Did you think about yeah. the kind of chef? Well, you're, go ahead. If you could see what's inside of my brain right now. What is it? Who, what, well, what, did you, was, what was the picture you It had? was such a silly picture and it changed obviously so many times. I mean, when I first went, like... I wanted to be one of those master chefs, you know, and, and there weren't too many things that you were upon graduation. You were either a certified master chef, Mm -hmm. a chef, a sous chef, or a pastry chef. That was it. And being a certified master chef was a great honor at the time. You know, you had to go through a whole process. You, you probably had to go and work in Europe and train there as well. But I saw myself in this this high level doing that. Doing that. So you saw like when I like first doing went ice, school, like ice carving, ice carvings and, all, and, and stuff in aspic and all <laughs> like the really old stuff. Cooking in elegant European restaurants and that was the kind of thing that got you going. Yeah, that's so great. I know it's so it's it's such a it was such a fantasy at the time. Yeah, but this is a really romantic notion. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like you really kind of like keyed right into like the history of this profession that you chose. I was I was tapping into that a hundred percent. And then, you know, luckily I was, I'm still a very practical person. And I knew that when I graduated the school and at the time it was very much apparent that it was just the basics and you're going out into the workforce now and you have to do every step of the kitchen before you become anything. So then that was my plan at the time, obviously become a line cook, do that before I can be a sous chef, do that before I could be a chef. And then see what happens after that, you yeah. know? So that was, the plan was just to work. Yeah. I mean, that there was nothing more than that in my mind. There yeah. was no other goal. I wanted to work. I wanted to be in kitchens. Mm-hmm. So what kitchen, where's your first, where's your first job? You come to New York? <laughs> no. 
My first job was randomly at a restaurant called Kelsey's okay. on Marathon Key in Florida. Oh my gosh. I moved to the this Florida This has been expunged Keys. from your public biography. <laughs> I, know. Of I do prepare for these interviews. Of course it has, because it's a bit really, of a, this is a bit it, turns of a out, it turns out to be a very long uh, bio if I put everything <laughs> okay. in it. Uh, it was a year's worth of, of restaurant experience. I moved there with my culinary boyfriend, my culinary school boyfriend at the time. Uh-huh. He took a chef's job in Key Largo. Oh my gosh. I took a job in Marathon Key. We lived on Isla Mirada. Oh my gosh. Of course, again, my parents were hands over their heads and eyes yeah. like, what, what is this? What are yeah. we doing now? Yeah. Where are you going? Right. <laughs> um, honestly, it was a great experience. I'm sure it was. It was a funky kitchen full of uh, people who lived in the Keys, yeah. which is a very transient group at that time. Yeah. Um, two, two people lived on houseboats. Yeah. The chef of the restaurant was a captain of a boat. There was a, a few old school European people in that kitchen. Yeah, you know, so these I w- are not the kind of people you went to school with no. who were kind of had their eye on the new American thing. Kind of, mm. so, these were like kind of the old old guard, uh, mercenary, yeah. exactly. traveling knives for hire. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I went in full uniform, buttoned up from head to toe. Did you really? I did. Did you have a kerchief? I had everything. <laughs> I, I was a foolish kid at the time. And they were like, really, kid? Like, you can wear shorts. Right. You can wear a T-shirt. Right. It was hot. It was yeah. so hot. Yeah. I kept it to, you know, a shorter chef's shirt, but I always kept my pants and my steel-toed shoes That's on. So funny. I wouldn't drop the, uh, yeah. the pro CIA That's chef at you. all. Good for you. I came back up and I, I worked in Jersey at a couple of restaurants. Uh-huh. I worked in Caldwell. I worked in Montclair. And then I realized I wanted to get into the city, mm-hmm. you know, and my first line cook job in New York City was at Vong. Okay. Uh, and I'll tell you that year, that was 1992. Okay. So Vong was, for people who don't know, this was uh, an early Jean-Georges Von Gerichten restaurant. Yes. It was, I mean, people don't really just use this word anymore. At the time, people just said it was kind of like an Asian or modern Asian yeah. restaurant. Like it was they really didn't really Thai get much based. more specific than yeah. that. But it was the foundation was Thai. Yes. Um, and um, it was in the East 50s. It was in the Lipstick Building. In the Lipstick Building. Yes. It was a very, I mean, it was a very, I think, I don't mean this as a dig. It was a very themey look. Yes. Uh, lanterns and, and little rooms set off by like uh, bamboo walls. quite the scene. It was a scene. The food yes. was, it was great. Excellent food. Yeah. Excellent food. And when I think about that era, I think about food like that kind of, what we, you know, Pan Asian or like, like it, it, it really was a restaurant of the moment. It was stunning to me because I had never worked with ingredients like that. Like what, what comes so, to mind? So, you know, when I, when I talk about it, I call it Thai French and it was Thai ingredients with French technique. Yeah. And I'd never worked with lemongrass or lime leaf yep. or, or, or Thai chilies or Thai basil. Yeah. Any of those flavors. Yeah. I'd never worked with any of that stuff. So at the time, John George had Jojo and Vong. Yep. That was it. Yep. Two restaurants. So he would go back and forth between the two. Yeah. So I was there and he was there and we were on the kitchen together and it was a big deal. It was yeah. a big deal. And to me, that was the ultimate. I really felt the energy and the vibe of New York, New York restaurant scene, being the hot it restaurant at the time, being one of two John George restaurants yeah. and the pressure of that. And I started... Um, in the pastry station plating. That was it. That's where I started. And I moved to the line, mm-hmm. which was 
a big leap and a big pressure for me. And I worked the grill. I was the Comey on the grill. Yeah. Dan Del Vecchio was a chef de partie who's oh now still John George's right hand man. He's like his aide de camp. Yep. Yeah. Forever and now. Like for forever. Gosh, for 20 years. He's At been in that job for a long time. More than that. Yeah. And that was who I was cooking next to at that time. Amazing. Yeah. And then so it was. John George running through the kitchen in the middle of service saying, eh, tonight's 400 covers. I love New York. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> like it was that kind of energy. Was that job, I mean, there, you talk about the romance of the, of the industry. I think about being in a kitchen like that at that time. Did you feel like you were in the middle of something that was happening? Absolutely. You could feel that. I could uh, feel it. In terms it. of the industry, in terms of food, restaurants in this country. You I mean, like I you wasn't were at- a, as much of a broad scope like that but I knew that going into that kitchen every day was we were it we were in the middle of it all and maybe there was a few other kitchens in New York that were about the same but that was it yeah we were we were it and that drive to make sure that we did well Mm -hmm. was heavy yeah every day I mean the crew that was in there I mean like I said these are people that are now high up in the industry that cut their teeth at these restaurants. Yeah. Um, and so it was a, an amazing time in New York City restaurants. And, oh God, my story is so deep. To make a long story short, I wanted to move up further on the line, but it just wasn't happening. Yeah. I, wa- I wanted to be the chef de partie. I wanted to work other stations. Everybody was kind of locked into where they were, so there wasn't a lot of movement. There was right next door to Vong in the Lipstick Building was something called the Lipstick Cafe. Uh-huh. Uh, small cafe, a lot of stuff came out of our kitchen. We saw a lot of those chefs and the people who ran it. Amy Sacco at the time was part of running the Lipstick Cafe. Okay. Um, she's, I don't know what you call her, a nightlife maven now. Yes. Um, nightlife legend. Yes. Of legend. And she was starting something that was part, you know, nightlife bar thing, part restaurant. And she asked me about it and she said, would you be interested in working with me on this? And I was absolutely a hundred percent. I wanted to do this thing with her. And so that was going to be my, my next thing that I was going to do. I was going to work with Amy on this. Okay. And that she was the girlfriend of Gilbert Lacoste yep. and he was the chef of La Bernadette yes. and he passed away. And she was also sort of a secret girlfriend. And this expose came out in New York Magazine after he died. It was a sudden death. And I spoke with her uh, several weeks, obviously, after she was in heavy grief. Sure. And she said, I'm putting the project on hold, and I'm sorry. But she said, I want to introduce you to this woman. Her name's Diane Forley, and she's opening this restaurant in Gramercy Park. I think you'd really like her. And that was it. I met Diane. Diane took me on a tour of this rubble, right. <laughs> this pile of rubble Job site. Yeah. of this restaurant that she was about to open. And she would point to a pile of rocks and she would say, this is where Garmage is going to be. Uh-huh. This is where pastry is going to be. This is the line. And I just looked at this woman and I was like, she's out of her mind. But she had this vision. She yeah. saw it. I couldn't see what she saw. And in 1994, I opened it with her. Um, I opened it with her as a, I was a line cook at first. Okay. And uh, Tom Guteau and Saul um, Saul Bolton, I think is his last name, were the opening crew. Saul Bolton, who went on to open Saul. Yeah. And Bro- I didn't know he was part of that he crew. He was okay. the opening crew. Okay. And, you know, as restaurants do, we had some turnover. I ended up being a sous chef. And 
I stayed there for six years. Yeah. It was a gem of a restaurant in Gramercy Park. Um, the food that Diane did was stunningly beautiful and very seasonally based. Yes. And it was kind of my first taste into moving with the seasons. I, you know, I was working in sort of these under these European chefs and obviously went to CIA. And the whole idea was that you can get anything anytime. And now there was this move because we were close to the Union Square Green Market and right. geography. Now in America, it was green market. The California cuisine movement was coming over to New York. Yeah. Use local, support farmers. The market's right there. You know, we had the farmers coming to us at that time. We didn't, mm -hmm. and sometimes we would pick up at the market. And I got into the rhythm, you know, of seasonality. And Diane really taught me about that. And, you know, it's end of summer. Tomatoes are great, but let's start looking at squash and apples. And man, we're in winter and we're root vegetables up to our eyes and we're bored and we're not creative. Okay, here comes asparagus and fava beans. And it felt weird to use anything after that. You know, stop using those spring vegetables as soon as they're not sweet anymore. So she really got me into that, that seasonality um, vibe of menu planning, yeah. cooking, ingredient picking, you know, she was definitely my mentor on so many levels, but especially that. That restaurant had a beautiful garden Amazing. or backyard area. Did, did cooking, did the idea of people eating in that space affect you at that time of year that they would be doing it? In other words, the idea that people were eating, you're in New York, right? Right. But people were eating in this beautiful outdoor space in the spring and summer. Yeah. Did that affect you guys in the kitchen? Absolutely. I mean, in New York, people will sit on the sidewalk next to a garbage can to right. eat outside. And fumes from, a, <laughs> uh, fumes from the Budweiser truck that's delivering so to the deli next door. We had this coveted garden space yeah. that was quiet, yeah. beautifully yeah. designed by Diane's brother. You know, Diane was out there all the time curating this, this heavenly space. And so... We were killer busy. We, we were like a seasonal restaurant in the months where we could seat outside. Yeah. And then we would have to adjust because we'd go back to 50 seats in the little gem of a dining room. So, you know, over the course of six years, you know, the staff that came in and out trying to figure out how to manage it, trying to make the most of it during the summer, but still have a high level of service. Yeah. You know, it was a, quite a learning lesson for me about how to manage a kitchen and a restaurant that has um, variances in amount of business throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And then you you rose to the level there of chef de cuisine. I did. And what was that? I mean, at, at, at that time, how much autonomy did that come with? In other words, Diane was still... Diane was in the press. Diane was there. Yeah, at the time, you know, you heard about Diane and you heard about Anne Rosen's Week. Right. That was it. But how did, in terms of you as chef de cuisine, like, were you starting to collaborate on dishes? Uh, were you yes, we were definitely collaborating on a lot of stuff. Um, Diane was super supportive about things like that. So you, you were know? starting to have a sense of kind of who you were right. on and, the plate. And there were things that, you know, sometimes I would have ideas and Diane was super diplomatic if, if it was something that was really not her style. She'd yeah. say, okay, well, let's take one element of this. And then I would kind of on the side start my own little notebook and say, okay, I would have done it this way, you right. know? And I was starting to see what my style is different from her style. So you were able to evolve. Yes. At the end of the day, she would kind of keep it in the Diane Forley lane. Yeah. The customers Which I highly it, respected. But you yeah. were given the room to sort of start thinking in, in the way that you would eventually be thinking on your own. Absolutely. It was it was the most ideal scenario I could have ever asked for. And I try to, I try now in my chef like 
to emulate that mm -hmm. because I think it's really important to give back to the people who are loyal to you and stay sure. with you and work with you. And Diane was great. She would take me to events. Um, she uh, made it possible for me to have a stage in Paris. You know, she she was always very giving because I think she knew if she gave to me that that only benefited her. Right. It's great. Which is... Uh, Rare, rarefied thinking these days. Right. <laughs> um, okay, at this very sweet moment, let's take a short break. Yeah. And uh, we'll be right back. We're talking with Chef Amanda Freitag in New York City. Uh, and we'll be right back on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Lucky like a four-leaf clover Shining like a tiny bride Landing on all four feet like a cat Who's ready for a wild night my theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Bob Moore is the founder of Bob's Red Mill, top quality supplier of grains, flowers, and general nutritional goodness from Oregon. He's talking to us about their signature millstones, a very specific way of making whole grain flour. So what's the secret, Bob? Follow me to the mill room. Well, these are just like the millstones that the Romans used to grind their grains. In fact, these stones came from the same quarry near Paris, France, where the Romans got their stones. The company that makes our millstones pulls their quartz from the same quarry and they make mills for us that are just wonderful. Bob explains how the millstones grind much slower and at cooler temperatures than modern steel rollers. The process keeps the grains cool, preserving the flavor and nutrition. Look at what they produce. I love how they keep things simple and just right. All the nutrition is there, just like nature intended. After almost 40 years in the milling business, they're serving up over 400 organic, gluten-free, and whole-grain foods right here from the mill in Oregon, sending them off to destinations around the world. We think we can make a difference by sticking to the traditional way of stone milling. And so, that's what we're doing. To learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their mission to bring good food for all, visit bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Okay, and we're back uh, speaking with Chef Amanda Freitag. So, Amanda, yes. um, you 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 leave Verbena yes. after six years. Yes, you do a stage in Europe. Yep, um, and then you come back to New York City. Yes, and tell me, you you, you start to have you start to have your own. Uh, I start to have experiences as outside a chef in your own of right. the Verbena uh, kitchen. Yeah, which I come to find was very different. Uh, so I bounced around. I opened a restaurant with Mark Spagenthal called The Dining Room. Um, that was on the Upper East. I did um, not know you were there. Were you I, the chef I was there? his chef. I had no idea. Yep. I remember that restaurant very there well. There was quite a... I, I remember that review from Hal Rubenstein. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite an experience. Um, yeah. I found a very, you know... Mail-oriented kitchen, a lot of screaming, a very different environment. Yeah. And it was just not somewhere where I thought I could thrive. And I sure. love Mark and the team, but I th 
it was time for me wasn't to for you. depart from there. And um, after that, wow, where did I go after that? Um, I went, actually, I went and worked with Sarah Jenkins. She was a chef at El Buco at the time. Okay. And um, that was a really amazing experience. This is the original Il Buco. The original Il Buco. So Sarah Jenkins took over after Jody Williams. Mm-hmm. Jody was the original chef there. And I got a great introduction to Italian cuisine. Mm-hmm. And Sarah is an incredibly knowledgeable, skilled chef about Italian cuisine, yep. especially the region of Tuscany where her and her mother have property. And I learned a lot about ingredients there, and I fell in love with Italian. So that I, I cooked Italian food for almost seven years after that. I worked at a teeny tiny little restaurant in the East Village called Lavagna. Mm-hmm. That was after September 11th. Uh, so it was a very heartfelt experience yeah. uh, going back in. I was a new chef. The restaurant was reopening. Um, it was, uh, it, was, it was a really good experience. Sammy mm-hmm. Cater was the owner. He had uh, Lavagna and La Tableau at okay. the time. And uh, it was tiny. I was hands-on, super-duper working chef. I did everything. Yeah. I worked the line. I, I did the ordering. I ran the Amazing. staff. I did the desserts. I, mean, I just did everything in that kitchen. And it was getting pretty tiring. I was just going to say, this is one of those like exhausting it was getting jobs pretty that exhausting. has kind of a short shelf life. It did, yeah. but it, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I met a dear friend of mine, John DeLucy, at the time. Uh-huh. And he was the chef uh, for both the... The, the hotels, the Soho Grand, Tribeca Grand. Missy Robbins was the chef to cuisine at Soho Grand at the time. John hired me to be the chef at the Tribeca Grand. And I, I thought, great, this is perfect. I want to get hotel experience. I want to learn more about the paperwork side yeah. of things, but I still wanted to cook. And these hotels were still high on the, the culinary chain. Yeah. Soho Grand more than Tribeca, which I didn't really know until I started working there. Made some really good friends from that job, John and Missy, but really didn't enjoy the culinary element of it. Yeah, sure. So um, I moved on after that, and John understood, and you know he knew I was unhappy. And um, I went to work with Tom Valenti. I opened Cheska with Tom on the Upper West Side, and it was one of the most incredible experiences. I mean, a humongous restaurant. Yeah. Two thousand three. Uh, Tom was taking over the Upper West Side. You know, he had West, and this was his second place. So there was a lot of eyes on the restaurant. And we opened something that we were very proud of, and that thing ran... Like a Big Mac truck. Yeah. I mean, we... They and it was from day one. From I remember. This is when one. you and I first kind of really yes. got to know each other. But yes. I remember coming in there and... Because uh, we lived... I lived in the neighborhood yeah. at the time. And it was... I remember from day... I remember coming in maybe the second time. The and minute we opened Conan the door. O'Brien was at the bar. <laughs> and like it was... I was, it was but you guys had just opened the we doors. Had just opened the doors. Yeah. And... Um, I mean, it was an open kitchen, and the, the 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 celebrities. It was kind of my first taste of celebrities connecting with chefs and restaurants, you know. And the Keanu Reeves, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Woody Allen. I mean, the people that walked through the doors of those yeah. rest of that restaurant was unbelievable, unbelievable. And uh, I loved my experience there, and it was um, it was it was sort of my. Swan song at the time, you know, to be Tom's chef de cuisine and to open that, to get a two star review, and and you know, to have that under my belt to have opened something like that. Yeah. Because we had a lot of structural problems. We had a humongous staff. I mean, to have trained everybody and got that place going, we were so proud. Yeah. 
I mean, you just said chef to cuisine, but am I misremembering? I feel like you, that was, people knew you were there. I was, you were in the press. People knew I was there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but chef was, Tom was chef owner. Yeah. So I could only get okay. really that, right. <laughs> you know. I got, I got he you. He knew, you know, we all knew. But I remember reading your name in the there. paper. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was, it was, it was really a big thing for me. Yeah. And there was a high burnout rate there as well. And um, there was starting to be a small collapse in the partnership. And uh, Cheska Atlantic City opened, and Tom didn't really want to do it. They were starting to come to me as a pawn in the game and saying, do you want to do it? It was starting to get quite icky. And I said, you know, I lived in Park Slope, Brooklyn at the time. And I said, you know, I'm going to get out of here. I got to take a break from all of this. And let me go hide in Brooklyn. (laughs) Uh (laughs) I thought I could hide in Brooklyn. Brooklyn's a good place to lay low. Like 2005, almost 2006. Mm. Brooklyn restaurants weren't a thing at the time. No, they weren't a thing. Not really. Yeah. Uh, I met this gentleman. We built this restaurant from ground up. On you know, he opened it. He was the owner. It was called Sete. It was on Seventh Avenue and Third in uh, Park Slope. Wood oven, Italian. Again, I was kind of back into the Lavagna days. I was doing everything. Small crew. Great restaurant. I I walk to work every day. Frank Bruni reviewed us. I thought it was a joke when he when he called to fact check. You thought someone was like pranking you? I thought you? somebody was yeah. pranking me. Yeah. I was on a, a landline in the basement with a long cord making right. pasta when he right. called. And I was like, who's, who's messing with you? You guys had no idea he'd been in, obviously. We had no idea. How was the review? We had a one star. Okay. It was a good review. But a positive one star. It was a positive yeah. one star in Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, again, I, it's hard, I think, for anybody to grasp that at the time, nobody was really cooking in Brooklyn. Yeah. They weren't. Very few people. Yeah, so yeah. I, I really thought I was hiding out there. Yeah, there were like, there was like Alan Harding and Saul, yes. Saul Bol- your old friend Saul, Saul Bolton and, yeah. and a handful of other people. I, yeah. I can't think of too many. Yeah. So um, I ended up leaving because it wasn't the deal that was originally proposed to me. And I became the chef at Gusto in the West Village. Ironically, I was kind of following weirdly in Jody Williams' footsteps because she was a chef at Gusto. Yeah. And I took over for her. And it was 100% Italian again. So I was really in the Italian mode for a while. And um, that was an insane restaurant. It, the scene was too much for me. Yeah. It, was not, it was not as culinary focused as I wanted it to be. And I was trying really hard. I mean, I was really putting like all of my chef energy into it. I was a chef there, executive chef at the time. Well, that was a really sexy little restaurant. It I was. used to, I lived walking distance Good from food. it at the time. And yeah, when you were there, it was great. And when yeah. Joe, I used to go when Jody was there. Yeah. And I, but I always, to be honest, I always had issues with the front of the house. And, I did too. And I stopped sitting at tables. I started sitting at the bar yep. only because they got better service yes, than the you bartender. Did. Yes, and, I know. And I then know I just, the bartenders and then very I just, well. I just stopped going. Yeah. yeah. And so luckily, um, <laughs> in a very fun way, I met Jimmy Bradley. He called me at Gusto one day, yeah. which is very Jimmy. Yeah. Um, I should say Jimmy's my old co-host uh, <laughs> from Heritage. We established the front burner here. But yeah. yeah. And at the time, you know, he had the Red Cat um, in Chelsea, and he was running the Harrison in, in Tribeca. And he kind of tapped me to take over the Harrison. And it, was, it had been open since 2001. Yeah. It needed a fresh face. Yep. And it was a huge undertaking because at the time you really don't get a lot of attention unless you're a new restaurant. Yeah. So we did a little decor changes. We did slow menu changes. It took a while to get the menu changed uh, because at the time I was dealing with staff changes. 
and we did it. We got the menu changed uh, six months after I began. Uh, in, I started in January of 2008. In May, we got our two-star review. And it was, it was that was the goal. Yeah. You know, and the Harrison got re-energized a bit. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was to me, a, a very proud moment. Jimmy was happy. I was happy. The restaurant was thriving. Even in 2008, it was a tough time. You know, the market You mean crashed. after the crash? Yeah, yeah. It was hard. It was so hard. And, you know, my culinary brain didn't want to know about that. I didn't care about that. I yeah. wanted to be busy no matter what. And I wanted to have people in the restaurant no yeah. matter what. And, you know, now now we're in restaurant world time where every restaurant has a PR uh, public relations firm. So it was Philip Baltz and um, our rep from there, you know, Put a lot of things out there. We yeah. have whatever you got to do to make make it known. Go on Good Morning America. Go on the Today Show. Do these articles. Do these events, in which I was doing. I wanted to do it all. And so uh, one day, Food Network actually called the restaurant, and it was probably a casting person. They said, you know, we we'd like to invite you to do you know an Iron Chef America battle, and I I, was, I absolutely without hesitation said no. Uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely not. Why? Because of the pressure? Because it just you know competition what? wasn't your thing? I was, so at this time, you know, now I have still an Italian bend, but American flair, in my mind, it's 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 not Iron Chef food. It's not yeah. caramel cages yeah, yeah, and yeah. exploding fried ketchup. It's, yeah. it's It wasn't that. I wasn't that chef. Jesse Gerstein from Philip Balt's office was our rep, and he called me and said, hey, what's going on? They want you to do Iron Chef. And I was like, yeah. I said, no. He's like, really he's like it'd be really good for the restaurant if you did this and it was uh, me really starting to understand the power of media at the time so I said yes and I did it and it was a very nerve-wracking day with a story behind it of you know not having the sous chef I was supposed to have and having a fill-in and the nerves were just there uh, because it was it was really important. I mean, Iron Chef America at that time was a big, big deal. deal. Who did you compete against? Uh, Bobby Flay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Not too much pressure. No pressure at all. And, you know, I ended up having fun with it. Yeah. My dad actually helped me. At the time, there was an audience, and yeah. my parents came, and my dad saw me, and he was always very stern and straightforward and he's like what's going on with you and I right. said really nervous and he's like what the f is going on with you this is what you do yeah you're gonna walk out of here and you're gonna go to work yeah just have fun with this and it just didn't dawn on me that I could and as soon as he said it the, the day was amazing I had a great time I enjoyed doing it you know I lost but, but you okay. know whatever well, one point your first at bat one point and it led to many other opportunities. They asked me to compete to become an Iron Chef, which I did in 2009. Yeah. Um, and I did it again in 2012. The competition thing was pretty cool because I never thought that was something I'd be good at. And yeah. I loved challenging myself. And the way that I got on Chopped was just one of those freaky moments of... of Knowing someone, um, regulars that I had at Gusto came yeah. in one night with Linda Lee and a friend of hers who is the creator of Chopped. And yeah. she said, you know, we're doing this thing. Do you want to take a look at the pilot? And I watched the pilot. And somehow, again, Jesse, Jesse knew everything that was going on, called me the next day. He's like, have you heard of this thing? And I said, I actually have the pilot on my desk. That's so funny. And it was a yes time for me. I said yes to kind of everything at that time. You know, if the opportunity was there, say yes. Yeah. And I said, yes. And here we are. And here we are. (laughs) (laughs) 
I know it seems really simple, but yeah. that's how it happened. And, you know, after the Harrison, um, I waited a little bit before my next restaurant opportunity. Yeah. Had an opportunity to take over the Empire Diner in yeah, Chelsea sure. yeah, with uh, two partners. Um, the partnership dissolved. And, you know, ever since then, I've been trying to figure out my next move in restaurant world. So you do this is we're, we're almost out of time here. Yeah. But I do. I did want to ask you. You said when we started this interview and you know, we're going to go through this story, yeah. you said, you know, I still think of myself that way. I, you do see restaurants in your future. I see producing food for the public somehow in my future. You miss that kind of connection. I mean, honestly, that. When I think of who I am, as I'm a chef in a kitchen. That's, that's who Amanda is. Yeah. I mean, if you were to look at me today, obviously you see me as a TV personality. But I'm a, I'm a dirty line cook. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was know? so funny. I hope I can say this. Uh, tell me if you do. don't like I said it and I'll cut it out. <laughs> no, but when I ran into you at Missy's party and you said, can I come on the podcast? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, of course you can come. You know? and, and I had said I had this hesitation. <laughs> and you kind of said, well, I had a hesitation because I'm not like in a restaurant. I didn't know yeah. if you'd want to you know, in, do the interview, <laughs> which kind of broke my heart a little bit. Yeah. You know? Because I've obviously known you long enough. I right. Mean, you know, exactly. I, although I have to say, I didn't know... All of these jobs that yeah. you had. Um, uh, I have many. <laughs> a lot of fun places. A lot of fun places. And places that would, le I would imagine, leave, you know, leave one with the restaurant bug. Oh, right? like, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all of them in, in, in different ways. Yeah. Different experiences in every single one of them. Chefs that I met along the way. Yeah. Um, things that I learned. Crews of people that I've met. You know, it's... I, again, like I said, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I hope that young chefs are listening because, I mean, to skip all that experience is a big loss, you know. And I think a lot of young chefs are trying to s speed up their careers and get to the top. And it, it, there's a lot in between that's way worth it. Well, it's funny. I hear the way you talk about you're being getting discovered the way yeah. you did. And, um, you know, uh, I interviewed once a guy named Lou Eckes, who uh, used to media train a lot of people. media trained Emerald most famously, who right. was not a natural on television when he first did it. <laughs> and uh, but a couple of years ago, Lou told me that he actually now gets calls or at the time did from uh, students at the Culinary Institute while they're matriculating at the Culinary Institute for media training. I believe it. I believe it. And, you know, as you can see, I've, I've had the great fortune of riding the wave of my career and having the chef career, being a part of the media yeah. buzz, being a part of Food Network, and kind of, in my in my mind, the beginning of it, obviously, it was going before me. Sure. Um, and being able to do both and everything and being able to write a cookbook and doing all these aspects of restaurant life. And now I think... It's hard for me to assimilate all the social media at this point. I feel like I'm just sort of dipping my toe into that. None of that ever existed before right. in my career. Right. You know, we didn't have to Instagram our dishes while we were cooking them at Vong on the line. You know, right. like I can't imagine us doing that ever. Yeah. What would that have been like? Well, when cell phones first came along, if you were put, took your phone out on the line, that was like a major transgression. I, w I wouldn't even think of it. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't even want it. Yeah. I wouldn't want my phone with me. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, it's another wave of learning how to, you know, be in the food industry and, and, and just be a part of it with social media as well as big television media. Right. And find a way to be in touch with people directly with your food somehow. Uh, somehow, some way. And right yeah. now it's just in pictures. Yeah. 
it's odd. I, I'm not going to say I don't love it, but I'm yeah. going to try to learn why and, and what people are really looking for yeah. and, and, you know, how to f- actually physically feed people food. Right. <laughs> so well, take pictures of it. I look forward to eating your food again. Thank you. I appreciate and, uh, that. Thanks for making time to do this. It, it was, was my great pleasure. To, great to sit down and talk. Thank you. All right. Thanks. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Amanda Freitag for joining us this week and for making the time to do that interview. Uh, Also a thank you to my wife, Caitlin, uh, for helping out with the intro to the show. I know that was a little sad, but I, you know, it's just not, it doesn't come naturally to me. I like a script if I'm pre-recording. And I haven't thanked, and I've been meaning to thank every week, David Tatashor, my engineer, Uh, who splices these things together and puts the music in and cleans up the editing that I've been learning how to do. And David, thank you for everything. If you'd like to follow the show, we are on Twitter and Instagram as at Chef Podcast. That's at Chef Podcast. If you'd like to follow me personally, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as well, at Toakland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D, Andrew. That's again, Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to Andrew's Talks to Chefs on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. And as always, if you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes, it helps people find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll look forward to seeing you back here next week on Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>